Good morning. How you guys doing? So uh, last year was my uh, youngest daughter, Emmy's first grade year, and she loves school so much. Uh, But about midway through the school year, she started having uh, more and more issues in the morning getting ready for school, like started really dragging her feet. And and then the stomach ache started happening. Oh, yeah. Parents are like, oh, yeah. Stomach aches started happening with more and more frequency, and we, we started seeing tears. And then we started hearing this. Here's what we started hearing. I don't want to go to school today. I don't feel good. Okay. Please don't make me go to school today. I just want to stay home with you. So first we were like, that's cute. You think we stay home all day. Cool, 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 cool. And then Amy and I were like, okay, what's, what's going on here? And we started to pry a little bit. You know, these stomach aches and tears would happen uh, two to three times a week in the morning. And I'd uh, drive her to school and I'd try and be like supportive listening dad. I'd be like, so is something happening at school that makes you feel nervous about, about being there? Nothing. Couldn't get an answer out of her. Like, is somebody picking on you? Like, I can beat them up. <laughs> I mean, especially if they're in first grade. <laughs> Let's go. But nothing. And I would take her to her class, and her friends would be all there lined up, and she would just be in tears and holding on to me, not wanting me to leave. And it was heartbreaking. And like I said, she loves school. So this is not normal behavior for her. So uh, after a couple of weeks, uh, she came to us, and she, she wanted to tell us what was bothering her. So like, all right. And she took a deep breath. She said, Mom, Dad, I'm afraid that my teacher is going to give me a positive paw. That's, that was my reaction, too. All right, let me explain. Uh, my daughters go to school at Rancho Las Positas Elementary School. Fabulous school. Go raccoons. And they're very big on recognizing and affirming good behavior at Rancho, like being a model citizen. And one thing they do, if you are seen doing something really good, like picking up trash or, uh, or, or helping a teacher with something, or if you walk your friend to the nurse's office because they get hurt, anything, a teacher or faculty member at the school can see that behavior and say, hey, that was really good. Or, hey, I saw you do this thing, and maybe other people didn't see it, but I want to recognize this good thing you did. And they'll give you a piece of paper that says positive paw on it. Yeah, look at that. But that's not all. Kids who get positive paws, you ready? Get their names read on the loudspeaker by the principal. So now I'm like, Oh, I get it. You don't want the attention. You don't want your name read in the loudspeaker. You get that from your mom. (laughs) So we told her, hey, we, we hear what you're saying, and thank you for telling us, and we can help, yeah? We'll talk with your teacher, and we'll make sure they know that that if you do something really good, or if you're seen behaving well or helping out, then maybe reading your name on the loudspeaker isn't the thing to reward you with. And then, boom, problem solved. And look at this. Don't call her name over the speaker, please. Look, all that worry and stress just gone, right? Okay, but I'm going to say this, and we all know this. Once one worry is fixed, something else 
pops up to take its place, right? Like there's always something. Um, I just got back from a sabbatical that the church uh, was generous enough to, to give me and my family. Uh, I got to spend about six weeks at home uh, with my daughters and my wife just resting. And it was incredible. And, and towards the end of it, we took the girls on a five-day cruise, like on an actual cruise ship. And it's called the Navigator of the Seas. I got a picture. I want to see this. This thing is a mammoth. Yeah, those are water slides. Yeah, water slides on a boat. It's crazy. Water slides and there's like pools and there's, there's a mini golf, mini golf on it. Yeah, it was crazy. And the reason we did it was because our daughters had never experienced something like that before. And my little Emmy, she started worrying a little bit about our trip in like the weeks leading up to it. She started asking questions like, Dad, how, how big is the ship? I'm like, well, it's big. She's like, how fast does it go? I'm like, it, it doesn't. <laughs> and started asking how safe it was. And we're like, honey, it's safe. Trust me, it's safe. Uh, a few nights before we left, I picked up her iPad to plug it in at night after she had fallen asleep. And I looked at the screen and I saw that she had been Googling facts on the Titanic. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. So we... Uh, Probably less screen time for Emmy in the future, I would say. We're going to block Google on her iPad. But that's the, the pattern of our lives, even as we get older, right? Worry tends to invade us, and it invades our thinking one way or another. In fact, I think we would all admit that it doesn't change when we get older. Would you guys agree with that? We get older, and life changes, and we change. And for a lot of us, our worries about what the future holds and what's coming it can be excruciating. I mean, right here in a room full of adults, we could pass the mic around and probably all, all of us could, could share some of the worries we have rotating through our minds right now. Maybe you are facing a work situation or an environment that in your most honest moments, at its hardest, you would say, hey, sometimes I find myself dreading going into work or dreading going to school because I don't know what's waiting for me there. Maybe there's a, a conversation that you see coming down the road or, or some sort of confrontation in a relationship you have and you would say, I don't know how this is going to turn out and that uncertainty is really freaking me out. And it, and it goes on and on. Maybe you worry about a child or, or a loved one in your family. Maybe your worries are based in real life, Right? rooted in reality. You worry about something that absolutely could go wrong, that has gone wrong before. Or maybe the worry that you're experiencing is something a bit more out there, like it's a bit more rooted in fantasy. And maybe you would even recognize it this morning. You would say, yeah, Derek, this worry I have is unfounded. It's just something my brain imagined. But now that I've imagined it, it's not going away. It's all I think about. I think about the roof caving in or our gigantic cruise ship, water slides and all, just hitting an iceberg off the coast of Ensenada, going down. <laughs> but here's what happens. In this worry, in this pain, it is easy for us to feel cut off from the only real solution for that pain, which is closeness to God. We, uh, we started this series last week called Raise Your Voice. And uh, in this series, we're, we're thinking and talking about moments in our life that we can feel distant from God and how we can invite God into them. And Jody kicked us off last week by, by talking about how our wandering and our pain can be something we can invite God into. 
And what I hope to get us thinking about this morning is how our moments of worry can also be sacred opportunities to invite God to be with us, to be present with us. Because I think we would all probably say this, we know this, worry can be a very lonely, very isolating experience. And we're going to get back to that thought, but first I want to talk about worry. How do we define worry? Uh, We know what it is, right? We, We know what it feels like, but let's take a moment to define it here, all right? Behavioral uh, scientists who are a lot smarter than me uh, took a crack at it back in 1983, and here's what they came up with, and I'm going to read this uh, definition for you. Worry is a chain of thoughts and images, negatively effect-laden and relatively uncontrollable. Ooh, that sounds right. It represents an attempt to engage in mental problem-solving on an issue whose outcome is uncertain but contains the possibility of one or more negative See, that's a really good, smart definition, but it's a little bit wordy. So here's another way of putting it. I wrote this down. Worry is when our minds get fixated on the worst case scenario. Worry is when our minds get fixated on the worst case scenario. And I like that. That's good. I'm going to put my name on it. There you go. (laughs) Worry is when your mind, when my mind, as it processes the thousands and thousands of stimuli and situations it's presented with daily, it, it sees how something could go drastically wrong, and then it imagines a narrative, a storyline that stems from the bad thing happening. And and we know it is a given in life. Even in Proverbs, we read, anxiety weighs down a heart, but a kind word cheers it up. Anxiety weighs down a heart. And we know that when our hearts feel heavy, when they feel weighed down, there's a felt distance from God that, that we start picking up on. Let me, let me paint a picture for you of how easy it is to, to let worry drive that wedge in between us and God. And right here is where I need to stop the message. I'm going to stop preaching for a little bit. I'm going to get really honest with you guys, okay? I spent the last two months worried about how this sermon was going to go. It's going great. Thank you. She said it's going great. Uh, I'm not even kidding. I was worried to varying degrees. I have had my worries about this morning and how it would go. See, I knew I would be teaching when I came back from my break. But I also knew that it wasn't wise for me to try and write my sermon during my sabbatical. Because writing a sermon is not restful, and I want to stay married. (laughs) That was out for me, okay? Couldn't write it during my sabbatical. But here's what happened instead. Every couple days when I was on break, I would stop and I would think about this sermon. I'm not kidding. Every once in a while, I'd be doing something, hiking or going down a water slide on a cruise ship with my daughters, and I would go, huh, i got to teach when I get back. I wonder how that's going to go. And it happened a few times during the course of my break. Just, boom, in my head, preaching when I get back. Yep, got it, okay. (laughs) Then I returned to work last Monday, and I came back, and I found out that while I was gone, our teaching team had kind of altered some of the main points of this series that we were going through. And I went, okay. So now I'm like, wait, wait a second. Oh, man, I wonder how much it's changed. And I started doing the what ifs, right? What, what if the change is something that takes me like out of my wheelhouse? What if I can't teach on the things they want me to teach on? And then the worry got real. 
And remember what we said earlier, right? The, the, the Walker definition. Worry is fixating. Yeah, it's the Walker definition. Thanks. Worry is fixating on the worst case scenario. And I started thinking about the worst case scenario. I would think, if I get this wrong, or if I don't, you know, nail it, I might not get invited back to teach again. I started thinking, wow, what if, what if, what if, uh, what if people get mad because I say something that they don't agree with? Or, or like bumps up against their like theological understanding of who God is. Here's, here's one. Here's what I thought. What if people stop liking me? Ooh, that's a big one, right? That's the root of a lot of worries I bet we in this room face. What if I mess up whatever task I'm doing so bad that people stop liking me? So here's the reality for a lot of us. We find ourselves immersed in worry, and it consumes us. It eats us up. It takes joy from us. It takes sleep from us. And you know what the worst part is? Here's what we experience. Like we said earlier, we experience a distance from God. Our worries drive a wedge in between us and God. And we can't explain it. We can't reason with it. But, but the distance we feel is really about Worry. We worry that something we did makes us unlovable or unforgivable. We worry that a specific habit or or personality trait is going to disqualify us from knowing God. We say, you know, I come to church on Sunday, I go to my small group, I try and read the Bible, but my brain is preoccupied with everything I'm facing. My worries about my job, my worries about my family, my worries about the planet. I cannot get away from them. And because of that, I cannot get closer to God. Now, here is where I'm going to let some of you down. And this is not even a worry. This is just a fact. Because this is not a sermon about how to defeat worry. I'm sorry. I don't have those answers. Maybe someone else does. This is about how in our state of worry, in our very normal, very commonplace worries that we face day in, day out, we can raise our voice and invite God to come be a part of our worries, to come be with us. This entire series is about inviting God into the dark places and the struggles in our lives. And I want to show you a story where that happens. Because the Bible is full of people looking at a difficult past and an unknown future and stressing about what's coming next. We are going to see people in the Bible time and again praying, crying out to God, pleading that he, he look at their situation and show them where to go next, pleading that he come rescue them from their present anxiety and danger. And I have to be honest about how different I am when it comes to worry. And maybe you'd relate. Because when I'm worried, when I'm stressed about something, oftentimes the last place I think of going with my worry is to God. I'm too caught up in that worst case scenario. I'm turning it over in my head. And the thought of inviting God into it, it seems really foreign and it seems really messy. And I find myself almost subconsciously thinking, God, you don't want to live here in this worry. So let me get it cleaned up. 
Let me get, let me get past this moment. Let me get past this season. I'll sweep everything up. I'll get the cobwebs put away. And maybe we get to a really clean, neat season where I'm not worried, where I'm not anxious. And then maybe then that would be something that you could live in, maybe something you could be present in. The, uh, the story I want to look at this morning is the story of Elijah. And, and our story begins in 1 Kings. Now, here's the context of the scripture we're going to look at today. Okay, King Ahab becomes king over Israel. And with him, he brings his wife, Jezebel. Jezebel influences him to worship Baal. And Baal is not God. So that is going to be a problem. And Elijah is sent by God as a prophet to tell King Ahab that what he's doing is wicked. But, but here's the deal. Elijah is one of those prophets whose reputation kind of precedes him, right? He's brash. He runs his mouth. He's kind of like me. A kind, of, kind of Elijah vibe, you know? In fact, there's a moment earlier in 1 Kings that I love. And the king Ahab sees Elijah. This is earlier, earlier, after he's been in exile and hiding for a while. And we see this. When Ahab saw Elijah, Ahab said to him, Is that you, you troubler of Israel? Okay, I actually like one of the other translations where he says, There you are, the biggest troublemaker in Israel. Some of you will relate to that, right? Like you've walked into a bar before and have someone go, ah, oh, here he comes, here comes trouble. <laughs> Biggest troublemaker in Chile is right here. <laughs> but, but by the time we get to chapter 19, where our story is, Elijah has, has kind of broken the last straw, okay? And he has had several prophets of Baal, who is the god that king's wife worships, he's had them killed. Uh-oh. And we see Elijah embarking on one of the three activities that we see Old Testament prophets doing the most. And this is biblical. This is true. Besides yelling at kings and reminding them what God says, what Elijah's doing is he is running to a different country and hiding out. See, Elijah has angered the king and angered Jezebel for the last time. And so now, in the aftermath of that, he has taken it upon himself to run away. So look, 1 Kings. Now Ahab told Jezebel everything Elijah had done and how he had killed all the prophets with the sword. So Jezebel sent a messenger to Elijah to say, may the gods deal with me, be it ever so severely, if by this time tomorrow I do not make your life like that of one of them. Elijah was afraid and ran for his life. Jezebel, who is married to King Ahab and oversees the prophets that Elijah just killed, says, that's it, I'm coming for you, it is over. And in the face of that very real, very present threat and the extreme worry that you probably imagine comes with it, he is terrified for his life. Let's keep moving. Throwing it up. Elijah was afraid and ran for his life. When he came to Beersheba in Judah, he left his servant there while he himself went a day's journey into the wilderness. He came to a broom bush, sat down under it, and prayed that he might die. I have had enough, Lord, he said. Take my life. I am no better than my ancestors. Then he laid down into the bush and fell asleep. Well, look at that. Now, who, who can be honest and say that their worries about the future, their worries about the worst-case scenario coming true, has led them to this? Maybe not to the point of wishing for death, although maybe. But, but to that general feeling of, I am done, God. I am throwing in the towel. I can't do this anymore. 
See, when, when our daughter was telling us about her worries, here's what she was actually saying. I'm afraid of this thing happening, and because of my worries about it, my heart is weighed down. I do not want to continue. No more school, please. And once we were hit with the truth of what was going on with Emmy in her class, we, you know, her parents, we had a choice of how we were going to react. Are you guys familiar with the, the, the phrase tough love? Of course you are. When you become parents or employers or you oversee people who depend on you for any sort of training, you, you have to get really good at that, tough love. And I think of tough love, think of my friend Sean. See, the past months, my friend Sean has been helping me get into shape, like eating right and working out, because that's literally his job. He's a trainer, and I'm literally 42, and I want to be physically healthier than I am now. At the beginning of our journey together, Sean was really open about how we were going to do this. He's like, you're going to eat a balanced diet of whole foods with a good amount of protein, and you're going to stick to it. And you're going to work out with this workout plan, and you're going to stick to it. There aren't any shortcuts that are going to produce the results you've told me you want. And so I did that plan for a week. <laughs> and I came in with some thoughts. I said, hey, Sean, appreciate all you're doing. This is great. But you have me eating a lot of egg whites and a lot of oatmeal. And I really hate egg whites. And I really hate oatmeal. <laughs> By the way, I, I preach this in first service, and a really nice person came to me and said, Derek, all you got to do is put chocolate chips in the egg whites. <laughs> I was like, I don't think I'm supposed to do that. <laughs> but I really hate egg whites. I really hate oatmeal. And I'm wondering if we can switch things up here. And I so appreciate what Sean said, which was, my guy, you have been on this eating plan for one week. <laughs> Just eat the egg whites. Eat the oatmeal. Like, suck it up. It's not even that hard. Tough love, right? It's tough love. Well, I've had to learn how to do that with my kids a lot recently, but there are times for that, right? And because I'm starting to get the hang of this, I don't think the time for tough love was when my daughter decides to finally come to me and tell me what's got her so worried. I don't think I'm supposed to say, mm, well, all right, mm, I don't care. Figure it out, you know? Eat the egg whites, whatever. I can't help you. I mean, there are going to be little times where I cannot help her. I know that. But, but this just isn't one of them. Do you, I want to ask you this. Do, do you sometimes find yourself projecting onto God the, the persona of a parent who would say something like, oh, you're worried? You're, you're stressed? You don't know what's coming? Get over it. Get up. Start moving. See, I, I think, honestly, depending on what sort of parents or upbringing we had growing up and how we learned about God and who he is, I think it is easy for us to presuppose that God's reaction to our worries, to our stress, is one of two things. It's indifference or active disgust. Indifference or active disgust. We imagine God's reaction to our worries. We imagine they look and sound like one of those. Like God is looking at us and our worries and he's just rolling his eyes. Like, get a load of this one. They're worried. Again, something about a positive paw. I don't know. <laughs> All right, back to Elijah. Elijah's terrified. He is, 
He is worried. Worry has eaten him up. He has run away. And he has said, God, we are now officially in the worst case scenario. I am worried about what's coming next and I'm done. Take my life. I've had enough. And so maybe we would expect God, who is this mighty, stern Old Testament God that we read so many stories about, we'd expect him to be like, get up, stop complaining, move, right? You weakling, you, but no, here's what God does. You guys ready? Here's what God does. All at once, an angel touched him and said, get up and eat. What? Goes on to say, he looked around and there by his head was some bread baked over hot coals and a jar of water. He ate and drank. And he lay down again. God is bringing Elijah breakfast in bed. And it goes on. The angel of the Lord came back a second time and touched him and said, get up and eat for the journey is too much for you. Wow. Move on to verse eight. So he got up, ate and drank, strengthened by that food. He traveled 40 days and 40 nights until he reached Horeb, the mountain of God. And there he went into a cave and he spent the night. You see, God sees something in Elijah. God sees that worry has exhausted him. It's worn him out. And before he can issue the command to get up, keep going, move, God needs to attend to Elijah's very real, very physical needs in that moment. Can we, can we pause here for a moment? And I, Can I ask you something that might feel weird for you? And I want to ask you this. Is this the God you know? Is this the God you know? Or, or do you expect the other God? The one who is indifferent or disgusted with you? Have, have you come into contact with God like this? I, and I'm not asking if God has made food magically appear before you. I guess it is for most of us. That hasn't happened. I'm talking about God's approach here. The God who hears Elijah's cry and responds with care, responds with love, responds with empathy. Is this the God you know? Or is your God mean or indifferent? See, I think it's very easy for us to, to cultivate this image of a far off God. Even when we talk about his love for us, we hear Jesus talk in the Sermon of the Mount and we hear Jesus say things like, look at the birds of the air. Your, your heavenly father takes care of them. Of course he'll take care of you. And, and for some of us, and I'm gonna put me in that category, it is easy to imagine that like God is watching us through binoculars, right? Like a bird watcher, far off. He's keeping tabs on us. He knows what's going on, but he is over there. But wait, this God Elijah is experiencing in the desert, in the depth of his worry, the depth of his fear, is attending to Elijah. I know what you need, Elijah, he's saying. And it's not a tough love speech. It's not me telling you to pull yourself up by your bootstraps and move. It's breakfast. It's a subtle understanding that you can't go on until you're fed. Are you acquainted with a God who knows what you're going through and cares about what you're going through? 
You see, if we, we take the time to, to read God's story, we witness something, and it might surprise us, and it's this. God is intimately concerned and involved with what worries us. God is intimately concerned and involved with what worries us. In fact, Elijah is crying out to God in our story, and he's nearby this spot called Mount Horeb. And Mount Horeb is largely known as the place where God gives his Ten Commandments to his people. But earlier in the book of Exodus, there is something equally as beautiful that God does right here. See, 600 years before Elijah is here, this is the exact place where God makes contact. This is where God makes contact with the people of Israel through Moses. And some of you know this story, right? Moses is tending flocks, sees a bush burning, says, oh, rad, I should go look at that. And he's completely surprised to hear God's voice booming out of it. And here's what God says about his people, the Israelites, who are in bondage. He says this, the Lord said, I have indeed seen the misery of my people in Egypt. I have heard them crying out because of their slave drivers, and I am concerned about their suffering. So I have come down to rescue them from the hand of the Egyptians and to bring them up out of that land into a good and spacious land, a land flowing with milk and honey. So with this last little bit of time that we have together, I want us to recognize and identify this statement from God as what it is. It's not just a declaration of presence and it's not just a promise, but it is God hearing worries and reacting like only a loving parent can. So look at this. The Lord said, I have indeed seen the misery of my people in Egypt. God is saying, I see you. I'm not far off. I'm not at a distance. I see what is troubling you. He goes on. I have heard them crying out because of their slave drivers. And what's this? It's God saying, I hear you. I have seen your worries and I heard your anxiety. And he goes on. And I am concerned about their suffering. I can understand how hard this is for you, God is saying. So, I have come down. I am with you. This is important. God is saying, I'm coming close. I'm going to be present with you in the midst of these worries. I'm going to make contact with you. And finally, I have come down to rescue them from the hand of the Egyptians. What's God saying there? I can do something about what you were going through. I have a plan, God says to Moses. I am concerned with what you're going through, and it has you up at night anxious, and I know that. And you can rest safe knowing that I have thought this through. You see what's happening here, right? It's, it's just a few short sentences and God is showing us a plan, the blueprint for how he'll respond when we come to him with our worries. Here's what he says. I have seen and I heard what you're going through. I understand what you're going through even if it feels like no one else can and I am with you now and I'll be with you as we get out of this. So again, I have to ask you, is this the God you know? 
When you imagine how God would respond to your worries, to, to your anxieties, does he sound like God sounded to Moses? Or does he sound like a, a personal trainer telling you to suck it up? Telling you that your worry, your anxiety is weakness? I, I hope you see what, what I see here, which is that God's words to Moses are, hey, Moses, I'm safe. I am safe to bring your worries to. I am safe to bring your anxieties about an unknown, unknowable future to. I want to close our time together by, by listening to a song together that Sophia is going to lead for us. As, as the band comes back up, I, I, want, to, I want to be asking you, uh, can, can I have you guys ask yourselves a few questions? Just really simple questions. What, what would it look like for you to know this God? What would you say to this God? Those things that we see God say in Exodus, I've seen you, I've heard you, I know you, I'm with you. What, what do you need to hear the most? Would you have the courage, like Elijah, to invite God into your worries? Not, not the tough love God, not the indifferent God, but, but the one who has promised that he cares and wants to be with you. All right, Sophia, lead the song for us.